In the last session, we saw that Paul ended by urging the Colossians to continue on in the faith, which he identified as the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Recall that in the very first session of this series, we saw how Paul was made a minister when Christ himself appeared to Paul on his way to Damascus to persecute the believers there. Jesus confronted Paul and caused him to see the truth about all that he'd accomplished, and then Jesus commissioned Paul as his special representative or apostle to the Gentiles. And you can see this in Acts chapters 9, 13, 22, and 26. After his encounter with Jesus on the way to Damascus, Paul spent the next 30 years of his life carrying out his God-given mission to spread the gospel. He traveled widely from the Holy Land and the Middle East to the Roman provinces throughout Asia Minor, Greece, Macedonia, and Italy, and some even speculate that his journeys throughout the Mediterranean took him as far as Spain. In the very first session of this series, we saw Paul himself tell us all of the things that he'd already suffered for the sake of the churches during his ministry. One time, when Paul and Silas were unjustly imprisoned in the Macedonian city of Philippi, we see how he handled that time of suffering and mistreatment. Acts chapter 16, verses 23 to 25 say, When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This is typical of how Paul rejoiced during his sufferings. So as this next section of Paul's letter to the Colossians begins, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. When Paul is writing this letter, he's under house arrest and awaiting trial in Rome. So even in the midst of imprisonment, Paul is rejoicing since he knows that he's not suffering because he committed a crime against society, such as theft or murder. The last eight chapters of the book of Acts explain why Paul was now being held under house arrest in Rome. The only reason for his imprisonment is because he was faithfully fulfilling his mission to proclaim the gospel. The word translated sufferings is the Greek word pathema, which means mistreatment or hardship. And Paul adds that his sufferings have been for your sake. His mistreatment had been in the line of duty. He has been working on their behalf to benefit them. But he's had to deal with mistreatment and opposition to his ministry almost everywhere he's gone. As Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this... The world hates you. 
The next set of phrases in this verse are accurately translated into English, but in the original Greek, the word order is different. The only reason I mention this is because the phrases, I do my share, and then later, in filling up, are actually a single word in Greek, but the English translation separates the ideas from each other. The Greek word, antanaplerao, is a very rare double compound word from plerao, which means to fill, and this word means to fill up in turn. Paul is saying that it is now his turn, or as it's translated here, I do my share. He is filling up or carrying forward what Jesus said would happen, both to himself as well as to those who are his, which we previously mentioned from John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. Paul says it is his turn to experience the opposition and pressure that Jesus promised would come to his followers, and he expresses it this way, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. But first, we need to understand what he means by Christ's afflictions so that we can determine what is lacking. The word afflictions, the Greek word philipsis, means pressure or trouble. It is never used in Scripture to describe the suffering of Christ on the cross. Earlier in this letter, Paul had clearly taught that nothing whatsoever was lacking in Christ's accomplishment through his death on the cross. Christ's work on the cross was complete and sufficient for redeeming all mankind and reconciling the world to God. So here Paul cannot be saying that there's something lacking in Christ's death on the cross. But there were other pressures and troubles that Christ experienced during his earthly ministry. One Bible commentator has said, The word afflictions is never used in connection with the death of our Lord, so it must apply to his pre-cross suffering caused by the pressure of Satan and human adversaries, not to speak of the apathy and unbelief of the people. It is appointed to all believers to have a share in this kind of suffering. The word lacking is the Greek term husterima, which means what follows behind or is yet lacking. One Bible scholar called them the leftover afflictions. Again, this takes us back to Jesus' final words to his disciples in the upper room. He said, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. That's the same Greek word, phlipsis. But take courage, I have overcome the world. John 16, verse 33. Paul says that his sufferings are in my flesh. Now, we've already looked at some of the things which Paul endured during his ministry. And the phrase, in my flesh, reminds me of what Paul wrote to the Galatian church when he said, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Galatians 6, verse 17. Paul's many mistreatments must have resulted in fleshly scars that were very much in evidence all over his body, and he considered these to be his Lord's badges of ownership in his flesh. Paul made it clear that he was not doing this for his own benefit or for his own glory. 
He said he endured everything on behalf of Christ's body, which is the church. Now, this is yet another way Paul could say that he was filling up what is left of Christ's afflictions. The church is Christ's body, so Jesus experiences anything that happens to the members of his body. As Jesus said to Paul while on his way to Damascus to continue persecuting the church, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To afflict the church is to afflict Christ, too. In Colossians 1 verse 25, Paul goes on to say, Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. In this verse, Paul elaborates on what he had said in verse 23, that he had been made a minister of the gospel. Here he says that his appointed role was according to the stewardship from God. Now, the word stewardship is not one that we tend to use very often today. It's from the Greek word oikonomia, which is sometimes translated economy, administration, or the method of operating something. It carries the idea of the obligation, responsibility, and authority to manage things. Paul was given a special stewardship over the church. It was ultimately, as he says here, for your benefit. Literally, it was focused toward or into the church for establishing it and building it up in the faith. The final phrase literally says, to complete the word of God. The words fully carry out are translating the Greek word plerao, which we've seen several times before, and which means to fill to the top so that nothing is lacking for a full measure. It's accurately translated here as to fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, even though the word Preaching was inserted by the translators in order to express this thought. This was the Apostle Paul's primary mission. He was faithfully proclaiming the message of Christ's work on our behalf. But there was something beyond even that task which Jesus was using Paul to accomplish. And we'll see what that extra something was in the very next verse. Verse 26 says, That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. In this verse we see that there was information which God had kept hidden from past generations, but he was now making this information publicly known to his saints through the Apostle Paul. So Christ is using Paul as a channel of new revelation for the New Testament church. Jesus used Paul literally to complete the word of God for the church. The term he used here to express this idea is the word mystery, the Greek word musterion. This is the first time we've seen this word in Paul's letter to the Colossians, but it is one that he had used previously in his letters to the Thessalonians, Corinthians, Romans, and Ephesians. Because Paul had taught this concept previously, he would expect the Colossians to understand what he means by it. 
Here he provides a brief definition of the term by saying that a mystery is something which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. In other words, a mystery is new revelation, a truth that was hidden or unrevealed in the Old Testament. As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. God kept some of his plans secret until the proper time for them to be revealed. One Bible scholar expressed it this way, Mystery refers to the secret thoughts, plans, and dispensations of God that are hidden from humanity and can only be known through divine revelation. By the time Paul was writing, the mysteries had been well revealed to the apostles and New Testament prophets, and for that reason they were to lay down the foundation of the church, and they were to record New Testament revelation. It can now be understood by the saints with the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the basic Greek word musterion means a secret, and the ancient so-called mystery religions carefully guarded their unique secrets. Their knowledge was only to be shared among the initiates, and they were promised salvation through their secret ceremonies and rituals. A vow of silence would restrict the adherents from sharing any information with those outside. Many of these mystery religions were actively practiced in the known world of Paul's day, and some people in the Colossian church may have been rescued, to use Paul's own words, out of that dominion of darkness. But the New Testament definition of the word mystery was quite different from that. It is simply a truth that was previously unrevealed by God, but which he has now shared by revealing it to his apostles and prophets. There are no esoteric truths, no vow of silence, no secrecy in practicing arcane rituals. The revealed truth is publicly available to all, just as God offers salvation to all through the reconciling work of Christ on the cross. This was now part of the Apostle Paul's mission or stewardship for the church, to clearly share any new aspects of God's will and plan that were revealed for the church age. In Colossians 1 verse 27, Paul says, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We saw in the last verse that the mystery has been manifested to his saints. Manifested was the Greek word phanerao, which means to bring something to light, to make it clear. Here in verse 27, he says that God willed to make known this mystery. The word willed means that God had intended, planned, or determined to do this at exactly the right time. To make known is the Greek word noridzo, and it carries the idea of declaring or revealing something in order to make it fully known. But notice that Paul does not say that God merely makes known this mystery. Instead, he says that God made known the riches of the glory of this mystery. (laughs) This mystery is glorious and full of riches. Riches is the Greek word 
plutos, which means wealth, abundance, or plenty. And glory is the Greek word doxa, which means something that results in praise and honor to God. Paul used a similar expression when he wrote to the Ephesians around the same time as this letter to the Colossians. He said that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 1 verse 18. All of the things we have in Christ bring us a glorious abundance beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. Before Paul tells us what this mystery is, he first explains that it's being offered to the Gentiles. As one Bible commentator has said, this is the crowning wonder to Paul that God has included the Gentiles in his redemptive grace and that Paul himself has been made a minister of this grace among the Gentiles. He feels the high honor keenly and meets the responsibility humbly. So the new truth which God is revealing to us through the Apostle Paul is expressed in just a few simple words in this verse. Paul writes, Christ in you, the hope of glory. As one Bible scholar explained, the Gentiles are in focus as this mystery involves them. The fact that the Messiah now indwells every believer is the mystery unrevealed in the Old Testament. While the Old Testament revealed many things about the coming Messiah, his person, his message, and his program, it never revealed that he would indwell every believer. This is now revealed in the New Testament, fulfilling the promise that Jesus made in John chapter 14, verse 20, I am in you. It's really interesting here that this profound truth is expressed so simply. God, by his Spirit, in each believer, has taken up permanent residence in them. As it says in Ephesians 2, verse 22, you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Christ dwells within us by his Spirit. And here Paul calls this the hope of glory. As Paul was writing one of his last letters to his right-hand man, Timothy, he said, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1. If all we have is Jesus, we have all we need for both today and the glorious future. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, we see, We proclaim him, admonishing every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So as Paul continues to write about the ministry to which Jesus appointed him, he explains how he carries out his mission, as well as what his ultimate goal is for all the believers whose lives he touches. How does Paul communicate the message about Christ? First, he proclaims him. This is the Greek word katangelo, which means to announce throughout or to proclaim far and wide. This is Paul's ministry of publicly declaring or making known the truths about Christ and what he accomplished to reconcile the world to God. Next, Paul admonishes every man. This is the Greek word nutheteo, which means to put in mind to warn or admonish someone gently. 
First, people need to know the facts about the work of Christ on our behalf, and then they need to understand the consequences for failing to accept and act on those facts. Then Paul teaches every man. This is the Greek word didasko, which means to instruct or deliver information. This is where the truths of the faith or the content of biblical doctrine are carefully presented to every believer. This is the job description for every pastor during the church age in which we're living today. Paul says he does this with all wisdom, meaning that he teaches in a practical way which helps the learner to understand and apply the teaching to their lives. In addition, one commentator has said, this is opposed to the idea of esoteric wisdom represented by the mystery religions, with higher knowledge given only to a select few. In Christian teaching, the highest wisdom is freely open to all. Finally, Paul gives his ultimate goal for this work. He says, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Here Paul uses the same word that he had used back in verse 22 when he said that Christ has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The Greek word is paristemi, and it means to place alongside or to bring close. I think that Paul has in mind that scene that he mentioned previously where Christ is presenting us to the Father. Paul wants to do everything he possibly can to make sure that every believer is complete in Christ. The word complete is the Greek word teleos, which carries the idea of something having reached its final goal or its full expression of maturity. Some have expressed Paul's goal as producing spiritual adults in Christ, no longer babes in Christ, mature and ripened Christians fully grown in Christ. This is the condition of the Colossians that Paul was praying for earlier in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. He wants them to grow in spiritual maturity through the teaching ministry which he and others have been given for the church. Notice that three times Paul repeated the phrase, every man, and he's emphasizing that every individual, without exception, is offered the reconciliation that Christ procured by his death on the cross. Christianity is not some obscure mystery religion or secret cult into which only a few are allowed membership. Here in Colossians 1 verse 29, Paul says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul explains what energizes him as he labors and strives. The Greek word for labor is kopiao, which means to grow weary from toil or exhausted with wearisome effort. It can express exhaustion from carrying burdens or experiencing grief. Striving is the Greek word agonizomai, which sounds very much like our English word agonizing. It means to contend with adversaries, to struggle with difficulties and dangers. 
But here we also see that Paul was not laboring and striving in his own strength, expending his own meager resources. Instead, Paul worked using his power, which mightily works within me. In chapter 1, verse 11, Paul had prayed for the Colossians that they would be strengthened with all power using the Greek word dunamis, from which our English word dynamite comes. We saw that verse could literally be translated powered with all power. And here again we see literally his power which powerfully works within me. Dunamis is used in both places. And the Greek word works is energeo, from which we get our English word energy. Paul is really presenting himself as the poster child or best example for living in the strength that God provides. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. In the previous section, Paul expressed his desire for every individual believer to grow into spiritual maturity. And starting in this verse, he expresses his desire for the entire fellowship of believers in Colossae. Paul wants them to know that even though they live in a small market town, which has no apparent claim to the attention of the leaders of the church, They are known and seen, they are of concern to others, and they do matter to the church at large. Paul uses a form of the same word that he used in chapter 1, verse 29, when he says he wants them to know how great a struggle he has on their behalf. Struggle is the Greek word agon, which means, as one commentator said, an inner contest of anxiety for the church at Colossae. He was literally agonizing over them, and not only for them, but for the believers in Laodicea and the whole Lycus Valley. These were people to whom Paul had not personally ministered, as it says here, those who have not personally seen my face. But Paul's concern would be like the love and care that a grandfather might have for his grandchildren. Paul was their spiritual grandfather, since they were one generation removed from him spiritually. He's concerned that his lineage would continue on a firm foundation of the truths of the faith. In verse 2, he says that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. So here he goes on to express his desire for the entire group of believers in that area. He wants their hearts to be encouraged, which is the Greek word parakaleo. It means to call alongside, to help. And it's a form of the same word Jesus used to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 16. Paul says in the next phrase that one of the most encouraging things about the Colossian fellowship of believers is that their hearts are knit together in love. This is a translation of the Greek word sumbibadzo, which means to push together or unite in affection. As he says later in chapter 3, verse 14, this kind of unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love is the glue that binds them all together. 
And we know from chapter 1, verse 4, that the Colossians were already demonstrating this type of love for all the saints. Paul also desires that they experience all the wealth that comes from understanding the truths of the faith. This is the same word that he had used in chapter 1, verse 27, when he talked of the riches of the mystery. Here, again, he uses the Greek word plutos, which means wealth, abundance, or plenty. There is a sense of being the richest man in town when the believer truly understands what he's been given in Christ. This sense of abundance results from full assurance, which is the Greek word pleraphoria. It means perfect certainty or complete conviction. This one word by itself probably would have been sufficient to get his idea across But Paul goes on to say, full assurance of understanding, which is the same word that he had already used in chapter 1, verse 9, when he said that he had not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. One other thing that Paul had prayed in chapter 1, verse 9, is also amplified here in this verse when Paul adds, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. True knowledge is a proper English translation for the Greek word epignosis, which we also saw previously in chapter 1, verse 9. It means thoroughly understanding, recognizing the importance, accepting and applying something personally in our lives. At the end of this verse, Paul restates the mystery that he previously revealed in chapter 1, verse 27, that is, Christ. In verse 27, he briefly described the mystery as Christ in you, the Messiah indwelling the believer. And here, Paul abbreviates it even more using a single word, Christ. But he continues in verse 3 by saying, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If people in Paul's day were craving some kind of hidden or secret knowledge, as some of the Greek mystery religions were doing, then Paul gives believers the whim by saying, in effect, If you have Christ, then you have all the treasures of wisdom, Sophia and knowledge, gnosis. The word treasures is the Greek word thesaros, which looks and sounds like our English word thesaurus. It means the place into which precious things are laid up or valuables are kept. So Christ is our treasury because in him we have all of the riches and wealth and abundance that we could ever need. We see in verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. Paul had already commended the Colossians for their faithfulness to the word of truth, the gospel. It was constantly bearing fruit and increasing as they were growing in their knowledge of Christ toward full spiritual maturity. But here Paul warns them that there may come a time when others might try to deceive them with persuasive arguments intended to derail them from the true way that they'd come to believe and follow. Delude is the Greek word paralogizomai, which means to deceive by false reasoning. 
The world of Paul's day was awash with traveling orators and philosophers. As one commentator has said, this refers to artful words, smooth and plausible arguments, such as were employed by the Greek sophists and rhetoricians. Persuasive argument is a single Greek word, pithanologia, which means persuasiveness of speech or specious discourse, which leads listeners into error. One Bible scholar described them as the enticing words and false reasonings of those who seek to take advantage of believers and turn them away from the simplicity of the gospel. Both their manner and their matter are suspect. Paul is suggesting that teaching, contrary to the faith, owes more to the skill and subtlety of its advocates than to any supposed truth in the words that are presented. Paul will spend more time discussing this issue in the upcoming sections, but here we see the first hint that trouble may be on the horizon for the Colossians. However, in verse 5, Paul sums it up by saying, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. In the final verse of this section, we see Paul reassuring the Colossians that even though he's not physically present with them, he is with them in spirit, doing everything he can to encourage them, warn them, and build them up in the faith. And here Paul also takes the time to commend the Colossians for two important things. First, he rejoices to see their good discipline. Good discipline is the single Greek word, Taxis, which is a military term. It means an orderly arrangement and carries the idea of a proper order or a well-regulated life. One language expert explains that it expresses the orderly arrangement of a harmonized and undivided church. So Paul commends them for the positive and orderly way in which they're conducting their lives and their church activities. One commentator has said their order encourages him to think that they will not be swept off their feet by persuasive talk or be inclined to depart from the guidance which the present letter affords. Next, Paul commends the stability of their faith in Christ. Stability is the Greek word stereoma, which is also a military term that means strong, solid, or stable. He's saying that the Colossians are well-established in their faith, their knowledge, and their trust in Christ. This is a wonderful affirmation of the strength and stability of the believers in Colossae. In the next session, we'll hear more about Paul's warnings to the Colossians regarding possible threats to their faith. One application we can take from this section is to ask ourselves, how are we dealing with the trials and pressures that we experience in life? Are we grumbling and complaining, or are we rejoicing in God's sovereign care over us? Are there any afflictions which you're being called upon to endure for the sake of Christ and his church? Next, how is your intake of the preaching of the word of God? Are you exposing yourself to a regular dose of solid expository preaching? 
Are you in a church or a fellowship which regularly teaches the truths of God's word and the doctrines of the faith? If not, then what steps do you want to take in order to place yourself within reach of the sound teaching of the Bible? Are you part of a local fellowship of believers that allows your heart to be encouraged? Are you being knit together in love with fellow Christians? Someone has wisely said that loving someone is not defined by having warm feelings toward them, but by meeting their needs. The last time you made a sacrifice for someone was the last time you loved him or her. Love is first action, then the emotions follow. So the strengthened heart is a heart that has learned to love. How can you put this kind of love into action this week? Finally, let us all practice good discipline and struggle to maintain the stability of our faith in Christ this week. There are so many influences all around us that distract us and can derail us in our focus on Christ. Let's be aware of things that might sound good to our ears, but which really have the goal of steering us subtly off the narrow path of devotion to Christ.